Intention Podcast, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is a limited series of thought-provoking and accessible conversations with emerging mid-career and established visual artists from across Canada. Hosted by writer, educator, and editor Neil Price, along with the cultural producer and curator Diane Gistal, Intention aims to shed light on the breadth of the Canadian contemporary art scene and provide a platform for artistic voices to dive deep into their creative intentions and the facets of their practice. Each episode features some of Canada's most prominent and diverse contemporary visual artists, including June Clark, Ken Lam, Rajni Pereira, Anna Bintadiallo, Caroline Monet, and Sin Keen, and others. Tune in on all streaming platforms. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wetmore. And this <gasps> is our 50th episode. Oh my god. That really snuck up on me. I didn't realize until fully 30 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a slow moving train to be hit by, that's for sure. <laughs> it's been seven years. Although I did the math. <laughs> I did the math. Oh no, it's... what is the math? No, it's good, it's good, it's good. So <laughs> the first one was in 2017. So we've got seven years, 50 episodes. That averages out to an episode every two months, on average. Okay. Which, All you right. know, We're sating that thirst. <laughs> indeed. It's like, hey, <laughs> how frequent is your craving for talk about art criticism? Every like, eight you weeks. you know, every other month, sometimes I'd like to dip in, and we're there. We're, we're there. there. We're exactly meeting <laughs> we're there the, the market demand. <laughs> well, 50 is a big, a big old deal, so... I, I raise I raise my water glass to you. Thank you. <laughs> we are appropriately celebrating this anniversary with a hell of an interview and and a really spiky text at the center of it. Yes. So um, maybe you can sort of roll us into introducing our guest. Indeed. So we're celebrating this birthday with a real one-two punch. We're talking to the wonderful Nazrin Himada about a text by the venerable M. Norbese Philip. So to introduce Nazrin, Nazrin Himada is a Palestinian curator and writer and currently associate curator at Agnes Etherington Art Centre at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Nazrin describes their practice as heavily influenced by their long-term friendships and by their many ongoing collaborations with artists, filmmakers, and poets. And did Nazrin give you a sense of what they're working on lately? Yeah, they're in a, a pretty... Um, so many words are running through my head. <laughs> Interesting, important position at Agnes Etherington. But they also have this recent project called For Many Returns, which is sort of an experimentation with writing as an act dictated by love. And it's typical of Nazarin's curatorial interests, which foreground, and I'll quote here because it's so lovely, Embodiment is method, desire is transformation, and liberation through many forms. For many of our listeners, I think M. Norbese Philip 
has a reputation that precedes her, but why don't you also give us an introduction to her and, and understanding sort of what the text is at the center of this conversation with Nazarin? Yeah, it's no small thing to introduce Norbesse. Yeah. Um, she is a greatly esteemed Canadian-Caribbean writer and poet, although Nazarin actually talks about how they see Norbesse mostly as an artist because her work is so invested in formal experimentation. Mm -hmm. uh, so her one of her best-known works is called She Tries Her Tongue, Her Silence Softly Breaks, which is a book of poetry about language, racism, colonialism, and exile. And that book won the 1988 Casa de las Americas Prize for Literature, and Norbese was the first Anglophone woman to win that prize. Yeah, and readers might also uh, recognize her from Zong, um, a 2008 book-length poem about the Zong Massacre, an 18th century mass killing of enslaved people by the British slave traders, which was subsequently ruled a legal insurance claim. Did you touch on that as well with Nazarin? We didn't so much talk about Zong, but... I think it's indicative of the kind of formal experimentation we're talking about. So Zong was entirely written from words found in the court cases that established these murders as legal. And interestingly, Norbesse is also a trained and formerly practicing lawyer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that formal experimentation is very present in this text that we're talking about called Interview with an Empire. It's in the form of a Q&A between a writer and a critic, but it could also be seen as Norbesse responding to her experiences of colonialism, displacement, and thinking about all of that in terms of language and image. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complex text that really kind of folds in on itself um, from the start as Norbesse is questioning um, the kind of colonial grip on English and its potential for essentially freedoms of expression. Um, and then immediately the critic being sort of buttonholed into a sort of antagonizing and daft <laughs> you know, interlocutor was notable. Yeah, it was funny when Nazrin suggested the text because, you know, we invite people to talk to us about a, a text of art writing and, and we get to why this, why Nazrin fits that within this. Mm -hmm. um, but the first kind of clue for me was that this subtle dig at the critic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. Um, so Nazrin ends up reading sort of snippets of the interview throughout your conversation, if right. I understand. So instead of having the reading up at the top, we decided to read and sort of talk at the same time, which mm -hmm. feels in keeping with this uh, like formal experimentation. So it's kind of an homage to Norbase's way of writing, who also takes this up when she reads her texts. She sometimes reads them, quote, out of order. The order of something being read top to bottom is optional. And she talks also in Interview with an Empire about reading together as a multivocal, polyvocal discourse that can act against this loss of language. Well, I can't wait for this conversation. Honestly, I've been um, excited for this for weeks. Here is Lauren Wetmore in conversation with Nazrin Himada about M. Norbese Phillips' 2003 text, Interview with an Empire. Yeah, my name is Nazrin Hamada, and I am Palestinian curator and writer. I'm working right now full-time as a curator at Agnes Etherington Art Center. My position is mostly to bridge the gap between uh, the university and 
the Kingston community at large. That's no small job. Yeah, it's not small. <laughs> Basically, I feel like I play liaison a lot of the time, but um, I'm also committed to really thinking a lot about the potential of a curatorial practice that's really based from a kind of pedagogical foundation. So I feel like for me, that's key to what I do. Uh, and it's not just because of this position, uh, but I feel like I've done that um, since grad school, since I did my PhD at Concordia. I did it in the interdisciplinary studies program in the humanities. Um, and I think during that time, which was, I began my PhD in 2008, I think Concordia has changed since then, I think in really wonderful ways from what I gather in the fine arts program, they're hiring new faculty, there's more of an indigenous and black presence in art history, which was not really. I think there was only two professors who were indigenous in that program at that time. And in fine arts, I can't even remember if there were any people of color or any indigenous or black professors in that program, but now there are. So I feel like um, Nadia Mir has been there for a long time, but um, now there's Deanna Bowen and uh, Juan Ortiz Apui. So I feel like this program is growing and it's probably giving me more hope for that, um, <laughs> for that university. <laughs> um, but yeah, at that time when I was doing it, I felt like all my professors were white um, of settler origin. And then I felt like I was really grappling um, to for myself and also having conversations with my peers and my friends just to how what we're studying matters on the outside, you know, and I yeah. felt like there was really no no kind of contextualization happening in a lot of my courses um, and the syllabi would mostly be uh, you know, we would be just reading a lot of French philosophers. And, you know, if it was like diverse in any way, it was like that they included women scholars. Anyway, it was just <laughs> really, you know, I feel like a lot of us remember that time just being yeah. kind of pathetic. So yeah, I think um, for me, it was really important to create a uh, kind of curriculum for myself. And that's how I came into film programming and then curatorial, because mostly the first love for me is cinema. And from there, I learned how to love philosophy and then poetry. And I find all of these worlds for me collide in how I do everything. So in how I teach and how I curate and how I write. So yeah. image-based work is super important to me. And grappling with language is super important to me. And I think my, like my curiosity comes from wanting to really engage with taking and we're going to get to this because we're going to read Norbese and this is what I learned from Norbese is to really uh, she says to decontaminate and for me it's very similar when it comes to thinking about what film does and what image-based work can do in terms of decontaminating our imaginary and creating new possibilities that have never been imaged before. So I think that to me is like key to what I do. Yeah. Hmm. I was really struck by um, your text for many returns. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking maybe we could start this conversation with that line that you wrote to start that yeah. text. You said, yeah. 
I want to move away from thinking about art writing, not as an analytical tool, but as a relational one, and not as a review that explains the object in question, but as a way to extend the work by seriously confronting my love for it, why I love mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And could that maybe be a framework that we could use to approach this text that you've that you've suggested today, the M. Norbese mm -hmm. Phillips interview with an empire? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I think for me, I got I got to thinking about this because also I was reading this text over and over again, um, Interview with an Empire and, um, and Echo in a Strange Land because they were bringing new images to me that really gave me language to what I was doing. And so Norbesse in one of the texts says, you know, that for a poet, uh, and for me, I would say an artist, and a poet is an artist anyway, but to like really think about the ways in which writing or language can bridge the gap between experience and the expression of that experience. And right. I think that's what a lot of artists do, right? And actually yeah. that gets us away from really confronting and criticizing representation because that's not representation but more thinking about what we're already doing as artists, as writers, that is not, is not functioning at that level and, and was never aimed to be functioning at that level. And I think that that's important to question for sure. Right, and that Norbese specifically describes it as a challenge and a struggle. Like that is, mm -hmm. that it is and will always be a challenge and a struggle. Like that gap, yeah. you can only, you know, she says the struggle is to reduce the gap between experience and expression mm -hmm. of that experience. It's not mm -hmm. about closing the gap. Like I, that, that gap is unclosable yes, somehow. Precisely, yeah, yeah, totally. And that's, I think, so important what you're saying because it really points for us to really focus on process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this brings us into, do you want to read the first excerpt you chose? Because this is where this part mm -hmm. comes up. Yeah, I will do that. Okay. Yeah, so I think the first one I picked um, in the book starts at, on page 54. And um, it's the voice of A, which it's set up that way, Q and A. Yeah, I'll just start. I believe some poets begin from a position where they take language as a given. Others, like myself, have a profound distrust of language. This may seem like an extremely odd position. It's like an artist distrusting color, a sculptor distrusting stone, or a musician distrusting sound. With one difference, neither the painter nor the sculptor nor the musician, needs his medium to function on a daily basis. We all need words and language to function. We are told it is what makes us human, but in its day-to-day -day use, this very language is very much devalued coinage. This is the same medium that is used to sell us goods we don't want, and through political half-truths and lies, to convince us that what we know to be the truth is not really the truth. In general, one of the most insidious uses of language is to separate us from a sense of integrity and wholeness. Essentially, what I'm saying is that the potential seductiveness of language is dangerous. I believe many of those poets who are described 
as language poets begin from this premise. But for me, there's another layer of distrust, historical distrust, if you will. After all, this was a language that the European forced upon the African in the New World so that the exploitative plantation machine could be more efficiently run. It was a language of commands, orders, punishments. This language, English in my case, but it applies to all the languages of those European countries involved in the colonialist project, was never intended or developed with me or my kind in mind. It spoke of my non-being. It encapsulated my chattel status. An irony of all ironies, it is the only language in which I can now function. And therein lies the conundrum. English is my mother tongue, but it is also my father tongue. I begin from a position of extreme distrust of language and do not believe that English or any European language for that matter can truly speak our truths without the language in question being put through some sort of transformative process. A decontaminating process is probably more accurate since a language as deeply implicated in imperialism as English cannot but be contaminated by such a history and experience. How are you able to write then, if you believe this to be the case? With great difficulty. It is like having an abusive parent. You can't pretend you don't or didn't have the parent or the experience. First, you have to find a way of healing, if that is at all possible than a way of managing the memory of that experience. For me, there's always a shadow around English and my use of English because this so-called mother tongue of mine is rooted in a very particular, brutal and traumatic history, that of the 400-year slave trade in which European peoples and nations kidnapped and traded African peoples to provide the labor force needed for the sugar and cotton plantations of the New World. Even as I use the words kidnap and trade, they in no way begin to convey the horror of it all. The murders, the rapes, the physical mutilation, the destruction of families, villages, cultures, languages are all neatly packaged and managed in the expression slave trade. The exquisite challenge every writer faces is that language always stands in for the experience, the thought or feeling. The struggle is to reduce the gap between the experience and the expression of that experience. In my case, there's a double burden, if you will, because of the history of the language in relation to me and my history. Essentially, language represents a wound for me. Hasn't it healed by this time? After all, it has been over a century. A mother never forgets the birth of her child. Ask any woman who has given birth, no matter what her age, and she'll be able to tell you what the birth of each of her children was like. There are certain experiences that defy the passage of time, is what I'm saying. The fact that the loss of a language didn't happen to me personally in no way means that I do not remember that loss. In fact, I remember it as if it happened yesterday. I'll have to take your word for it. Yes, you will. In the same way we take a mother's word that she remembers the birth of her child. But to return to my earlier point, because of this distrust that is lodged in the history of how I came to this part of the world, 
I handle language in a very self-conscious way, almost as a quote-unquote foreign anguish. I hope in the way a painter approaches her paint, or a sculptor his marble. It is not me, it is outside of me, a foreign anguish, and yet it is me, as only language can be the Heideggerian house of one's being, if you will. The only way I can then work with it is to fracture it, fragment it, dislocate it, doing with it what it did to me and my kind before I can put it back together, hopefully better able to express some of my own small truths. And for me, this is where form becomes so very important because part of the transformative and decontaminating process is also to find the appropriate form for what I am saying. Yeah. Hmm. You teach this text a lot. Mm-hmm. When you teach it, you teach it in this format. Well, you read a little section and then discuss and then read another section. And I'm wondering how do you are, well, two things. What questions do you ask them about the text? Mm. And how do they react to the text? Yeah, it's so funny because I did pull up my notes. I assigned this text because for me, I think it's really important because this is in the context of a curatorial studies course. And so I'm, I assigned the many different writings that play with form as they're expressing the necessity of thinking about form and producing certain forms for what we want to express. So the week after this, actually, we read Eve Tuck and Ceres, um, the Glossary of Haunting. And that also plays with this, you know, it takes up the, the form of uh, the glossary as it is critical of the horror film genre or uses the horror film genre to also express the haunting of, you know, the colonial histories and, and the ghosts that emerge from that condition and then creates a methodology through hauntings. So for me, Norbese's text is similar in a way that she's taking on the interview format and we find out later in the text that the Q is a critic of some form. It's interesting that the only kind of characterization or clue towards who empire, the person asking the question or Mm -hmm. the, the entity asking the question is that she refers to them as a critic. Yeah. 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 And so for me, I I just actually one of the questions is, who is empire? Yeah. So these are things that I feel like we want to really think about in terms of structure and decision making. And there's no us and them here. I mean, these thoughts could really be coming also from anywhere because of how insidious uh, kind of the colonial mindset is. I think in some ways also Q is the canon in whatever form we want to think about it, you know? Right. Uh, it could be the English canon, it could be the film studies canon, <laughs> it yeah. could be the art world canon, you know, and I'm, when I'm thinking about this, I'm really thinking about the Eurocentric canonization of knowledge in this way. I was really struck by this, this um, interview that you did with Norbese. Um, mm-hmm. She sort of starts the interview by expressing her gratitude for your interest in her text. Specifically because of your position in Canada, it seems. And she says that she's felt like a disappeared writer in Canada for the last 20 years. But I was also thinking about this in relation to that text you wrote, A Positioning, Not a Question, Mm -hmm. where you're saying 
I don't ever say that I'm Canadian. I'm not only, it's not that I don't want to be from here. This is not a place to be from. I'm interested in both of you having, having these, how does this feel? Um, struggling against that kind of overarching canon, if that was what we want to call it. We certainly call it empire. And I don't know if we can call it the critic, but Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're all associated, right? Yeah. And even a settler colonial positioning, right? I mean, that what you just read even rings more true now than ever because of October 7th. And I think in a way, I'm glad I said that because I think it's important to consider what it, not only, I mean, you know, I think this is often said now, like, what are our roles here as settlers, but I don't think of myself as a settler. And I think that's really important to think of for myself. And um, at some point I wrote that I did, um, and then I took it back because I was like, I was really using other people's language, but I am not part of that history. I'm not part of that history. I'm part of a history when settler colonialism was in play you know like i'm not from that initial settlement history so this is something that i feel like is important to consider because what happened to me and a lot of us through the function of a settler colonial state having to apply for visas and citizenships and permanent residencies in order to leave a war zone yeah in which countries like canada are also responsible for So the function of settler colonialism continues. Of course, they function in different ways, but they're still, they come from a similar modality. And I was telling my students this the other day, we really need to be smart about how we make these connections. What is happening in Palestine today and what's been happening there for the last seven decades, eight decades almost, is, is... very much connected to what happened here. And actually the checkpoint system, we can't even forget that that was organized and facilitated by the Canadian government in the prairies with the pass-through system. So this is something like, these are the ways that these kinds of violences that stem from settler colonial land intake, extraction, are very much attached. And just to extend that, like to think also about Norbase saying it is very important for this system to silence and erase voices of, say, Black Canadians to sort of push away that history because a representation of it cannot exist, you know. And if you think about that now in terms of all of these grotesque and violent Um, erasures of Palestinian participation, publication, everything. Like it is very important for that settler structure to take away evidence, you know, of that participation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very important to think about. Norbese also just received an honorary doctorate from Queens just about a, a month ago. Oh, really? I think since Black Lives Matter and even since 2021, there's been more major mainstream institutions yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now understanding exactly this, what you just described, that this, there was a systemic erasure of many Black voices in many different 
sectors mm -hmm. and and so now I think there's there's a kind of yeah uh, to re redress it somehow re yeah um, exactly yeah. but then at the same time to be continuing I mean I don't know what Queen's University's position is um but to be you know as a whole it would seem that institutions are continuing this now erasure of Palestinian voices which is from the exact same yeah 100 percent I yeah this is, you know, something I also really think about because um, anti-Palestinian racism stems from anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism. Like, these are connected. Yes. When you, we think about the kinds of language that's being used right now, even what the Wall Street Journal just wrote about Dearborn in Michigan, this demonization, that has a history. And we know where that comes from. Yes. <laughs> So from exactly what we just said. So I think this is something that is that we continue to grapple with, but something that I feel like, I don't know, because I'm not sure how to express it yet, but because of the connection of anti-Palestinian -Pal racism with Zionism and anti-Zionism being equated as anti-Semitism, there's also a difference. There isn't this rush to suddenly include Palestinian voices in all our syllabus or I don't think many galleries are calling up many Palestinian artists to include them in their collections. You know, I, I just don't think that this is actually happening at that level. And I think it's because of the censorship around anyone who is Palestinian or who is in solidarity with Palestinian liberation like we'll never get a platform in that way. As much as I'm critical of representation, I also feel like it's very important to think about what's safe enough, how, yes. how to safely be inclusive, and yes. then what's too risky. And I think what we're being shown right now is that we still live in a world where in some ways it's easier to censor Palestinians because of the way that anti-Semitism is being defined now, which is very dangerous. I think a lot of Palestinians and supporters of the Palestinian liberation movement are getting really the brunt of it. Anyway, there's so much complexity there that I feel like a lot of us need to be discussing. But I have to say, as, as I'm talking like this with you right now, I think the most disappointing conversations I've had have been with faculty on campus. Hmm. And I think there's this, there's a defense of the fear that many feel because of not wanting to lose tenure or risking getting their tenure. So even though other people and like we already know, because it's been in the public, like the editor of Art Forum getting fired and Wanda Nanabush leaving her job at the AGO, like people are taking the risk to not be silent. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about these different worlds and how they're colliding and, and my compassion right now uh, for anyone fearful of speaking out is just, is not there. It's not there because a lot of us do and have been doing it. And a lot of us put our jobs and our lives yeah. at risk because of yeah. it. And uh, that aside, people are dying. It is, it is not acceptable for white people in the academe or in institutions to use your conception of your personal safety and how the status quo protects it as an excuse or as a legitimation of not speaking out. And I think there are so many ways to do it. For example, I think if people really actually gathered together uh -huh. 
and spoke together. I like to what are, is the university going to really fire 150 professors at once? I'm like, where, where are the strategies here? Or yeah. for example, that gender studies and black studies released a statement. They were the only ones at the university and no one else stood up to support them. Even departments who I feel like have a kind of a, a, a collective strength, you know, like uh, film and media and cultural studies and other departments on that university could have really galvanized around gender studies and black studies in, yeah. in order to really show the students what they stand for. Yeah. So this is another thing that I feel like, again, like the behind closed door things in situations like this, I think it's hurtful and it's not to me personally, it's hurtful to something that's bigger than us. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It is at heart like dishonest, I would say. Um, the second excerpt, I think, does relate to what we're talking about, um, particularly mm. in terms of like how speaking out or how language um, can contain the difficulty of it containing the sort of horror of a past that is that continues to be present. Maybe if you would read it. Yes, 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 yes. The next one's on 198. Okay. Oh, it starts with Q, okay. Do you have any readership within black communities? Let me rephrase that. Is it only white people, critics and students who can appreciate your work? Mm -hmm. Poets and writers like myself who question and challenge the variability of the language itself to speak the truth of their memories and engage in what I call practices of dislocation find themselves on the horns of a dilemma. Their poetry can be described as being language-based and appears to share a great deal with those poets working within the European aesthetic of language poetry. The language-based nature of poetry, such as my own, starts from a very different place, that of the wasteland between the terror of language and the horror of silence. White or European audiences who do not understand the matrix of this poetry miss what the poetry is all about. They see it as postmodern. On the other hand, there's a sense in which we have delegitimized ourselves to some degree in the eyes of our communities who, after all, constitute our potential audience and market. If there is one central image that sums up English literature studies in the Caribbean for me, it would be the daffodil. Every school child had to engage with Woodsworth's daffodils at some time, although we had never seen them and yet our very futures depended on being able to write about these bloody flowers. So if I were to play around, riff on that image, I might turn out something like this. Is not a daffodil? Is? And not? Is? I'm far more interested in working with the structure of the language to destabilize the image of the daffodil. I really love this because I think it's it makes so much sense also for image-based work, you know, yeah. especially experimental film, which was my first experience of of art. And hmm. so I always think about this, you know, that I'm far more interested in working with the structure of the language to destabilize the image. And I think that this the, the materiality of film 
and the ways that a lot of filmmakers I love, like Charlene Bambo, Melena Schlamm, Paris Dhanushapur, uh, you know, these kinds of filmmakers, they really take on the material aspects of film mm -hmm. and the material aspects of composition in order to destabilize an image of a thought, of a feeling, of something insidious or that we've been indoctrinated into imagining. This is what experimental film can do, is just really disturb that. For me to hear those names that you listed, because, you know, when you think about experimental film and formal experimentation, it's always this history. It's always this, like, American men in the 70s and all that. Yeah. So anyways, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I, oh, yeah, I studied that for sure. It seems that the urgency of all the ills we have to rail against as New World Africans appears to militate against this sort of play. But given that the universe is always in play, what else is there to do but play? I suspect, however, that the memory of the horror and terror of loss of tongue lies so heavily on us that playing with language appears almost frivolous. There is as yet no parallel between the way in which New World Africans have used their language of music in the New World to create complex new forms like jazz and our literary use of English. This may have all to do with the fact that because we need language for everyday communication, unlike music, there's a powerful urge to approximate the standard use of language. Playing music, and in particular African-based music, was never seen as a mark of being civilized. On the other hand, speaking and writing English, French, or Spanish properly, in the manner that whites did, was and continues to be a marker of being civilized. It put some distance between you and your downtrodden African brothers and sisters. And sorry, here it also reminds me so much of how the of assimilation as like new immigrants and of diasporic experiences. And I remember as a kid, you know, I came here when I was nine and I I really rushed through learning English properly. I thought I knew how to speak it because we went to like a British school in the United Arab Emirates and everything was taught in English. But when I, we landed here, I felt like I couldn't speak the language. And I recognized what heavy of an accent I had. Yeah. I worked so hard to forget my first language, which is Arabic, yeah. in order to really fast track. I think this experience of speaking language properly as like a marker of being civilized is something that I think a lot of us diasporic peoples here really grapple with just thinking about how much I had to step in, you know, to understand certain things and communicate it to say my parents, even though they also spoke English, you know, right. but felt like right. there's this, there's this way of talking down to people who, who can have any marker of, of not being from here, right? How do you feel about Norbese's suspicion that playing with language can feel frivolous? I'm wondering, like, can this decontamination process that she talks about, mm. can it be enacted as play um, in the same way that you talk about art writing or art criticism as being enacted as love? Mm. Yeah, I grapple with this a lot. You know, I think my writing has been 
qualified as being vulnerable or personal. And these are things I just, I actually am very critical of because mm. in order to get at a thought, I need to intensely feel it. Not I need to, I do. I intensely feel yeah. the thought before I can articulate it. And so writing for me helps me to put it into language. And I think it's key for us to practice an embodied relational way of communicating. For me as a curator, in some ways, I practice a kind of refusal toward any mode of representation. I don't want to work at a representational level. Instead of explaining representation, I think I'll explain more about what I do that I feel like is very much in opposition to that, which is I forefront embodiment. And that for me comes from being in relation. So a lot of the artists I work with, we've either become friends, have been friends, or yeah, are now just like very much part of my life in this way that is daily. The conversations keep going, they don't end. And it's not work for me. This is key in me defining what collaboration means. It's, it's co-creation. And in some ways it's cohabitation, even if we don't live in the same place. But in terms of really being collective about how we think together and feel through these kinds of crisis together and what comes out of that. So representation has no play in there. You know, I'm not a Palestinian who's going to represent the Palestinian cause in a certain specific way by screening educational documentaries, for example. That's not how I work. And so for me, it's like this, it's very important to focus in on desire and intimacy and relationality. And that's how we create a sense of collectivity for ourselves, I think. Yeah. In this kind of ongoing correlation that is very much based on friendships and, yeah. and, and love. I wrote that piece for many returns specifically so I can say love because I think people really have a thing about that, you know, that it's too vulnerable or it's too much about emotion or all of these things that are also so hyper-feminized and like... Exactly. You know, I, I don't think that how we think is separate from how we feel. And yeah. I think to br bridge the gap between those two things is extremely difficult in writing. And I think that's exactly what Norbesse is also saying in Interview with an Empire. It's like the experience and the expression of that experience are connected and how we bring that into the world is through the form that we choose to bring it in. Thinking about what you were saying about what your role is right now, that you're this like liaison between the university and the, the greater public. And it's like, isn't that isn't that exactly what you're saying about how there is no separation between how we think and how we feel, like the university and the community, that, that your role is to remind people of that. Yeah, and also in this way of getting to know people and yeah. it's taking time. So this process takes time. This isn't, that's another thing I always tell my students too, is like, you get to choose how you're gonna go about doing this, but really I think the most important thing is, first of all, to get to know yourself and to think about the values that you are accountable yeah. to because that's yeah. hard and often we don't even know what our values are until we're in practice of them and until and we make mistakes around them too exactly and also some of us come from cultures we inherit and we carry those values forward like 
you know, people will say that Palestinians are one of the most hospitable people. And hospitality to me is natural. It comes naturally to me. It's like I can't help myself, you know, and that's the kind of culture that I come from that was in my home that comes from my people. And so these are things that we really talk about in my class because I'm like, don't take this for granted. And I think, think about how you want to relate to the artists that you love and you want to bring into your orbit. How do you want to contain and sustain these relationships? You know, for me, they're never one-offs. I forgot where I was going with that, but. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do the third excerpt? (laughs) Sure, yes. (laughs) So given the fragmentation, the ruptures, the discontinuities, it seemed to me that to force a work like She Tries into a logical and linear way of reading, top to bottom, front to back, was to do the experience a second violence. The fragmented manner of representation was indeed a truer representation of the history. You can begin reading the work anywhere and within any poem, although certain poems, like Discourse on the Logic of Language, lend themselves more to do this than others. Begin anywhere. Doesn't this sum up the colonialist project in one respect? How so? So many peoples, in my case African, were forced to begin anywhere, to pretend and behave as if there had been no before and would be no after. Begin anywhere. I began with wanting to subvert to destroy the lyric voice. I felt it could not bear the weight of my history. All this was presumptuous, perhaps, but that was how I felt. I also questioned the tradition of the solitary voice of the poet, often male, a white male, who embodied the wisdom of the society and who spoke for, on behalf of, and to his society or culture, in a voice of authority. Although he might be marginalized, and he often was, his words were valued. He had a role to play, even as outcast, and had the authority to do so. Did he succeed in destroying the lyric voice? I don't know. The certainties of youth appear to be just that now. I do know that what happened is that the work became impossible to read in the traditional sense. There were so many events happening on the page, not to mention the silences. In discourse, for instance, the poem that most typifies this challenge, there are four different voices clamoring to be heard on the combined facing pages. Seems to me that the work engages with one of the most significant African musical techniques, that of call and response. I also think that it encapsulates an African worldview in which the ancestors become the call and we the response. In turn, we humans call the ancestors into response, to act within our lives. It's like a snake doubling back on itself, eating its own tail. This call and response technique works both within poems and between poems. The contradiction in the center refrain of discourse. English is my mother tongue, is my father tongue, calls into response both the edicts against speaking in African tongues as well as the impulse to continuity of tongue, as in language, which the woman, in this case the black woman, bears and expresses. This does not, cannot result in smoothly lyrical poetry. 
I saw the lyric voice as one of the tools used to further the ends of colonialism and in upending the objective correlative. I would immerse the poem once again in the mess and the morris of history, not remove it out of its context, as Eliot urged. History was not dead for me, as the postmodernists urge. I wanted a chance to rewrite it according to my dictates, my memories. You may say this was presumptuous of me, but no more presumptuous than those who had written my history according to their dictates. And if the reader stumbled, stopped, and started, if she or he choked and gagged on the words, then it was successful. Why did you specifically want to talk about that excerpt? I think for me, it's, it's really important to think about the way she is formulating these techniques that she says also come from this African tradition and worldview of call and response into the form of her writing. When we talked earlier about curating against representation, I think in this way she's also writing against this history that has caused a second type of violence, of erasure, as if an absence and a forgetting. And so she's rewriting it through this tradition and then re-encapsulating it into her own formulation of a call and response method, like she did in Zong, which is a performance and a ritual and can be read as a ceremony and as a healing formation and a memorial even. So these are things that I feel like are important to think about in terms of this connection between what she talked about as, as decontaminating language, recreating it, and then re-encapsulating these traditional methods, like call and response, into her own poetic formulation. This to me is like an art. This is an art, this is art. This is what artists do, is they take into consideration history, so contextualization, and make it relevant in terms of innovation and inventing a new expression in order to bring this history back into its space. Kablusiak is the winner of the 2023 Sobe Art Award, Canada's prize for contemporary visual arts that recognizes visual artists at a critical juncture in their careers. Kablusiak is a multidisciplinary Inuvialic artist who explores connections and disconnections among family and community ties within the Inuit diaspora, as well as the impact of colonization on Inuit expressions of gender and sexuality, health and well-being, and on daily life. Kablusiak was born in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, and raised in Edmonton, Alberta, and they are currently based in Calgary, Alberta. All of the 2023 Sobe Art Award finalists, including the shortlisted artists Gabrielle Lorondel Hill, Michelle Pearson Clark, Anahita Naruzi, and Seamus Gallagher, are currently on view at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa until March 3rd, 2024. Well, can I ask you some questions about your practice then? Yeah, of course. So these are questions we ask every guest. Now, having done this quite a few times to start having like an archive of answers to similar questions. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. Yeah. 
so the two, the first two questions we always ask are, do you like writing and who do you write for? Um, mm. But as I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be asking you these questions. I was again thinking about this many returns when you said it's hard to write when I don't feel like it. In truth, I never do. I feel bound to writing. It's a duty, a Palestinian one, a hauntological one. Um, is that would that still be your answer to those questions? Do you like writing, and who do you write for? Hmm. You know, yeah, it's writing is super hard for me. I don't write very fast. It doesn't come quickly, and I think it's because I do live in the world between two languages. Yeah, where I don't know either one very well. This is how I live. I live in between two languages that I don't have a grasp of very well. And then for me, I think writing is an important practice because I really need to give language to what I'm feeling because it is what I'm thinking. Again, put this experience into an expression. And I do that both through the language of curating and through the English language in writing. And for me, mm -hmm. those are connected. So for me, my wish is that somehow what I curate and how I feel about those pieces I'm curating or the artwork or the space, the way that it makes me feel will translate somehow. And it's right. through rhythm and tone and like a, a kind of a sense of something that is, again, going to really move us in a certain way. Um, and that's never prescribed for me. So that's why also writing is hard because I'm also trying to write about that feeling, actually, that feeling of, of where you're, you're so moved by something that's bigger than you and that's like of, uh, of the world that we're living in. And then I need to kind of bring some kind of vision to it that is gonna communicate that to the people I love. So I write, I write for the people that I love and the people I love are the ones who are very close to me and also my people. I write for my people. I write for Palestinians and I write for the liberation of our lands. That is key to me. Everything and anything that I do is connected to that. That was very powerful. Another question, mm -hmm. how do you know where to start or where do you begin when you're writing? Um, where do I start? I think for me, like right now, actually, I'll just tell you about a current example because Please, it changes yeah. every time. Yeah. Like for many years now, but specifically since October 7th, I think the most nerve wracking thing for me to do is to introduce an event publicly at anything that I do, whether it's at Agnes or another another event or program because I felt like I had this huge, like I felt the pressure of really standing up for what's going on. I put a lot of pressure on myself, you know, to not take language for granted. And, and I don't like calling it land acknowledgement. I just do introductions. It's, you know, everything's integrated for me. There's no separation between what I'm doing and also consistently knowing that I live on this land and my responsibilities here. And so since then, I've been taking every opportunity that I've had to introduce my event or my program 
is to really practice expanding on this introduction. And now I want to turn it into a piece, you know? It's a land acknowledgement that is like of me, of what I've been doing, of who I've been thinking with, who's inspired me, of how I live on this land, but also my dreams, the liberation of this land and the liberation of Palestine. And actually, so much emerged from this writing process because now I've also included a whole section on the influence and impact and of Black liberation on my thinking. This is all because of Catherine McKittrick, you know, for the last few years uh, has been working on launching a Black Studies program at Queen's and it launched last year. And during that launch, you know, there was a question of what is Black Studies to you? Or uh, sorry, it was Black Studies is dot, dot, dot. So this was the proposition and it made me think a lot about what, what Black Studies has done for me. So there's a whole section now on how that's really influenced my, my whole being and, and that continues to grow and change and learn and feel. So this is, this is something that I'm super excited about. So that's, what, that's how I began this talk. Okay. For this particular piece, it came from this process. Maybe this next question is is maybe it's part of this um, part of this text you're making. But uh, which writer, dead or alive, would you like to have a drink with? <laughs> um, oh my God! Okay, well there are so Norbessa many. Norbessa aside, Norbessa. Oh, Norbe I was gonna say <laughs> it's implied. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. Um, you know what? I would love to actually have more drinks and hang out more and get to know Catherine McKittrick because she's been my hero for such a long time for so many years and I love that she's at Queens. I feel so lucky that I am in proximity to her right now and I would love to just sit down with her one day soon and just talk about everything. Yeah, yeah. so that, that would be nice. her for sure. Okay. One of the last questions, what is the text that you want to write, but you know you won't? The text that I want to write, but I know that I won't. Oh, no. I don't know if I have anything like that. Wait. That's always I... a nice answer to that question. For me, I'm like, if I need to write something, I'm going to write it. I will write yeah. it. My yeah. hope is that I will write it. Yes. Yeah. I get that. I get that impression. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything anything you wanted to talk about or like when the when the invitation came out that you mm. thought we were going to talk about that we didn't that we didn't cover? Oh, I really want to emphasize the importance for me, for my practice and as my students know for also the ways in which I frame a lot of my courses is to think about desire. And this comes from Eve Tuck and series reading desire is what we know about ourselves that's uncapturable, that cannot be captured. And so to have these moments where we can recognize that, I think we can really connect to a form of liberation in anything that we do, in our writing, in our relationships, in our artwork, in everything. So I think that for me is, is key to thinking about transformation. Hmm. The last question we always ask people is what is the pleasure of writing? But maybe that's your answer. Yeah, the pleasure of writing for me is thinking about desire. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. 
Momus the Podcast is produced by Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. Jacob Irish is our editor. Thanks to Nazrin Hamada for their contribution to this season. And if you like the show, please think about supporting us through reviews, sharing, or supporting us monthly at patreon.com slash momusart. Can I say this has been episode 50 of Mo? Should we do it together? No, you said it last time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Fine. This has been episode 50 of Moments the Podcast. <laughs>